The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Turn to your Bibles, and I actually, my Bible got left in a room, so I'm going to grab an electronic Bible here. Uh, that's how we work today. Uh, Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 3 is where we'll be today. Uh, it has been one of those mornings in our households, our birthday girl and other things, so my mind has been occupied as yours has, but may we pray that God's Word is big in our hearts as we do those things. Uh, I just want to give you a couple announcements as you're turning to Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 3. As we continue studying through the uh, uh, disciples and the, the pictures of their lives as we slowly, methodically work our way through the book of Mark. And uh, next week, uh, my family and I will be on vacation, and so we're going to have our phones off. So if you try and call, we won't answer. I hope you, so, uh, so if you have a concern or something that's, that's more, um, uh, how do I say it, more emergency level, that's not something we can get back to. Uh, Steve Braden and John Higgins uh, are deacon chair and deacon vice chair. Their numbers are in the bulletin. Please refer to them. Uh, we love you all, but we're going to go uh, just take some time off the grid, if that's okay. Uh, down in Branson trying to survive all those other crazy tourists. So, uh, uh, and if we go on the strip, if you've ever been to Branson, you know that, that is a, uh, that's an adventure in itself. So next week, Luke Burton, I see you're sitting right on the road. Luke, why don't you do the, the princess wave and do that sort of thing? Uh, young Luke Burton, newly married, has been uh, preaching at his in-laws' church, uh, now his family church, uh, by way of marriage, uh, the last uh, several months. And Luke Burton will be sharing the Word of God next week, so you look forward to that. Uh, we will take a break for just a week on the study of the disciples, but I want you to know that Luke's going to bring the Word with love, boldness, and compassion as, uh, as he can. So Luke, uh, no pressure. Uh, they're not a tough crowd. But uh, they, they look tough, but they're not a tough crowd in, in that sense. So uh, they're, they're very nice in all those good things. So, all right, so Mark chapter 3 is where we will be today, Mark chapter 3. And before we get there, as always, uh, you know, trying to think of these illustrations that come up with, and I thought this was very apropos to where we're headed today. But an elderly woman had just returned home from an evening of church services when she found an intruder. I, I cannot imagine what the feeling would be like if that happened. But when she caught the man in the act of robbing her refrigerator of its valuables, she yelled, Stop! Acts 2.38. Which, if you're not familiar with Acts 2.38, here's what it says. It says, Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, so that your sins may be forgiven. And the burglar stopped dead in his tracks, put down the food, and the woman calmly called the police and explained what he had done. As the officer cuffed the man to take him in, he asked the burglar, Why did you just stand there? She's an old lady. You're a big man. And, and all the old lady did was yell a scripture to you. He said, a scripture? He, she said she had an axe and two 38s. And that's what it was. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, sometimes our communication can have the different connotation than we want it to do, doesn't it? Uh, uh, so if you're a grandma here, that might just be your, your verse in your line if you have an intruder, uh, Acts 2.38. 
You know, uh, as I was thinking through this and, and what this means, we're setting James today. This is kind of how James was. James was someone who just shot out truth. He was a person who would just, uh, even more than Peter, even, even lesser known, but more than Peter, was so bold. The things he said kind of made people stop in their tracks, kind of made people say, did you really just say that? Did you really just mean that, James? I mean, you really want to cast fire down from heaven and burn these people to a barbecue crisp right in front of Jesus? Really? Did you really just ask Jesus to sit at his side in glory? Did you really just say that? His statements, although lesser known than Peter, as we studied last week, for sure make you stop and say, can anything else crazy come out of these weird disciples? And yes, it can be. James had a zeal, guys. He had a big-time zeal. And Romans 12, 11 reminds us that never should we be lacking in zeal, but we should keep, keep your spiritual, that's plural, y'all, keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. You ever known someone who is a Christian like a bowl in a china shop? You know, you just get them in a church and they're pointing out, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And although they're probably 99% right, someone has to come along and guide them and give them a little bit of tact. You ever known someone like that before? That is James. He spoke and people stopped in their tracks. But friend, the believer who knows the gospel will never lack in a zeal. If we spend more time in communion with Christ through the word and prayer, then our zeal will outshine all those men who worship lesser gods. So what's it mean to have a zeal for the Lord like James did? What does it mean to be, or is it possible to be too zealous, too on fire for Jesus Christ? And what are some of the practical takeaways from that? Well, the big idea, and if you're visiting with us, the big idea is kind of the summary of the sermon of the passage uh, from the one verse, Mark three seventeen. And it, it basically says this, is that we must have the ultimate passion for the three-in-one God, never lukewarm, but with an eager heart, full of zeal for Christ and his kingdom. Zeal can do great good. Our nation was founded upon people who were very zealous to be under or out from under the, uh, uh, almost the tyranny that was British rule at the time. Zeal can be a lot of good, even in political times. But as a religious person, more specifically as a gospel-centered Christian, zeal can also do great harm. We must be cautious, restrained, because misdirected zeal, although it may feel right, can often lead to some of the greatest heartache in the Christian life. It is a cheap zeal that reserves its passions to combat only the sins and temptations of others, but not one's sin. So today, I want to show you three pictures of a life of zeal for Christ from the Apostle James. We're going to look at a zeal from his pedigree. Ooh, doesn't that just sound great? I don't have dogs or horses, but I always like that word pedigree. And zeal from his prominence. He came from a very highfalutin, high escalon, really rub shoulders with the rich people kind of family. But we're also going to see a zeal for his passion. James, despite all of his trouble, had a major overriding passion. And I didn't intend, some of you asked me, he said, Darren, did you really intend to preach to 12 disciples over about 12 weeks? Really, no. I didn't want to. We are, we are really, I didn't want to get bogged down through Mark to take almost a decade. And that's kind of the pace we're on. Uh, 2021 is when we expect to end this book. But as part of the joy the Lord has called me to is to dig. And as we've looked through individuals like Peter last week, James this week, and John and Andrew coming up, and, and the others, there's too much good stuff here, guys about these men 
who struggled to know who they were in Christ, but how Christ used them despite that. And the Lord has caused my heart to slow down, which if you know me, that's a hard thing sometimes. We have more info than some and some less on others. But one of the most encouraging things about these 12 disciples is that the Lord himself can use men like these, and he can use people like you and me today. I hope that encourages you that they put their sandals on one sandal at a time. They put their, uh, their clothes on one pant leg at a time, although they didn't wear pants like we wear pants today. The Lord turned the entirety of his ministry over to these 12 rambunctious, weirdo guys that just happened to all be called apostles. It's like giving your teenager the car keys for the first time. I don't have teenagers yet. But I, I have a three-year-old, and she likes to have her own way sometimes. And I imagine how that is with the cars. But that is how it goes. Peter was impulsive, spontaneous, and spoke his mind. James was fiery, zealous, and fervent. John was fiery and zealous, but at the same time had a warm pastoral heart. Andrew was quiet. And someone had to listen to Peter and James and John, so it had to be Andrew, right? <laughs> Philip was the mechanical one. He was the routine, the slow plotter, the problem solver. Problem solver. Bartholomew was contemplative and meditative and a deep thinker. Matthew was decisive but had great humility. Thomas, man, he was just moody. That guy just could never figure out what he wanted to do with life. James, the other guy, the son of Alphaeus, not the son of Zebedee we're looking at today, the other James was a team player. He always wanted to be in the background, to be the guy that didn't get the credit. Thaddeus, as far as we know, was tender-hearted. Simon the Zealot, I told you, was part of a terrorist group in the Jewish world, but God called him out. He was fiercely loyal to whatever cause he was devoted, and eventually that was Christ. And then Judas, you better be here that Sunday. Boy, we're going to have fun with that one. Only one no one got to know because they always thought he had it all together. They aren't all wired the same. How could a group of these men walk together? because they were all focusing, at least 11 of them, on Jesus Christ. And church, we are as diverse as any church out there. What keeps us together? The focus on Jesus Christ. If you'll join me in standing this morning as we read God's word, if you're able, from Mark chapter 3, and we're going to be actually starting back in verse uh, 13 as we read. And I'll be reading out of the uh, new, uh, actually the English Standard Version this morning. And we'll look at one verse, verse 17. It says, And he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Remember, that's a sovereign call. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority, verse 15, to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, which of course means rock, and today, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Brangis, that is the sons of thunder. Guys, these are regular people. You're going to hear us say that a lot. These are regular, everyday people who didn't quite know what they were getting into when they were called, but eventually realized that their calling was the greatest thing that could have ever happened in their lives. Let's go before our Lord as we pray this morning. Father God, we are reminded today that sometimes we meet people in our lives that stop us in our tracks. Father, for the first time in our lives, for those who know Christ, that was when you called us to repent and believe the gospel. But Father, even within our own ranks, there are those who you've given such a zeal, such a boldness, such a determination to, 
that, Lord, you know who they are, and we all have those streaks. But, Lord, I pray it's tempered with love and gentleness and humility and all the things that we know. Father, as we study, may we not just study the life of a man, James, but may we study you, the Lord of him, and how you, the only true God, worked through him for your glory and the advancement of your kingdom. We don't worship James or Peter, Andrew or John. We worship you, Lord. But show us through your servants and the mistakes and the victories they had how to better live for you. That is our prayer. We ask this today in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Well, as we go through, I want you to notice... Uh, how to have a zeal for Christ, how to have a zeal for Jesus Christ. The first place I want you to start there is with his pedigree, with James's pedigree. There are two Jameses. This is the first James. This is James, the son of Zebedee. Say that 20 times fast. Zebedee, Zebedee, Zebedee. Very fun. It really is. But we want to start with two things about his family. I want to talk about his father, who Zebedee is. I want to talk about his mother, James's mother, because this will point us back to Christ. First, you see that name there in verse 17, Mark 3, 17, James, the son of Zebedee. This is mentioned to distinguish him from the second James, which is down in verse, uh, if you go down to verse 18, it says James, the son of Alphaeus. Luke, uh, Burton, and I had a a quick refresher in who James is this week, as uh, any good uh, seminary and former seminary students did, and we learned a lot about James ourselves. So Luke, thanks for that, that opportunity. But according to Mark 1, 20, Zebedee is a man of some nobility. James's father ran a successful fishing business on the north side of Galilee. Think of it, if you want to put it this way, think of it as Plattsburgh to Smithville or uh, Trimble to Smithville, if you want to do that sort of thing. Uh, Mark one twenty tells us that they had hired hands. They had servants. They were a big family business. And James and John, the brothers, were in business with his father, Zebedee. And Peter and Andrew were also partners too. And there's a lot of turnover, as there is in any business. So when John follows Christ, it, 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 he basically, he goes and tells his family. And he, it's strange that a fisherman was known. Because when John follows Christ, John goes and talks to the high priest about Jesus. Isn't that weird? So this son Zebedee, this father Zebedee, had such a big business that even the high priest knew about this family when Jesus was arrested. And it shows that John, and it shows that James, and it shows this whole family was very, very big time. And so his father had started this big fishing business. But according to Mark chapter 16 and verse 1, his mother, James's mother, called Salome, S-A-L-O-M-E, was also important. Why? Because she was the husband of a big fisherman? No. She was one of the first women James's mother was, to show up at Jesus's graveside when Easter Sunday morning came. Mark 15, 40 says that James' mother was one of the women who followed Jesus to the cross. So James has a very famous, rich father, very powerful father, maybe even a politics father, and a mom who got the message correct and followed Jesus for everything that she was in him. She was willing to follow Christ with an assault on hell, even if that meant that she had a water pistol like you'd get a little kid. But he also had a brother, James did, and I've mentioned him. Mark 3.17 tells us that his brother was John, the John who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the Apostle John. James is older and more dominant, but John is a chip off the block like his brother from his father. What does this mean for you? Well, friend, I, I, I think first off, 
is that no human being can ever fill the place in your heart reserved for Jesus Christ. Certainly love your family. You should love your family. Men, that is a command of Scripture that you love your family. If you cannot serve your family well, you have no business being in leadership of the church. And that, that is for every position, and one we take very seriously. But don't make them substitutes for Jesus. How often that the family becomes the focus. We don't know much about Zebedee, his father, James's father, but we do know that the business was very important to him. We never see Zebedee connected to faith, but we see mom connected to faith. Wasn't that true of Timothy? Timothy's mom and his grandma taught him about the faith in Christ. Men, it's another, it's another thing for us to remember that our businesses are important, our jobs are important for sure, but as it comes to faith, Christ is supreme. Christ is always supreme. Don't let anyone out-need you for God's grace in your family. Men especially, remember, be the thirstiest for Jesus, the living water, and the first to humble yourself. I mean, look down at, look down at Mark 3.21. I mean, look at this. Jesus' family, just jump down a few verses. When Jesus went home, his family, it says, heard about it, and they went out to seize him. They went out to arrest him. And they said, for surely he is out of his mind. When is the last time someone in your family said you were out of mind for believing in Jesus Christ? Do you have such a zeal, like James, like Jesus, like the apostles? Not just to be that guy, to, just to be, I'm going to be zealous for Jesus so people will be out of their mind for Jesus. No, to be humble about it. But when is the last time? Not even Jesus' family understood him, but according to Mark 3.11, if you jump back up to Mark 3.11, it says, And whenever the unclean spirits saw Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. It's worth pondering. Not even Jesus' family understood him, but the demons did. Friends, you may be in a family that comes to be, a, you come from a pedigree type family. You come from a family of, of prominence. But do you know that Jesus is a sinner? Or do you trust more in your family heritage than you do yourself? If you're not a Christian here today, you can't get to heaven on your mom or dad's coattails. You can't get to heaven based on your family lineage. You can't get to heaven based on my grandma was a pa my grandma was a churchgoer, my grandpa was a pastor. You are saved only through Jesus Christ. You are not saved because your mama's faith. You're not saved because your brother's faith. You're not saved because of whatever faith. You are saved because when you yourself choose to worship and surrender your heart to Jesus Christ. James and John, let's be honest here. They were probably waiting for Zebedee to pass away so they could get rich. You know what I'm saying? But mom challenged them in a different way. You know, it's kind of like this. Billy Graham, you all know Billy Graham very well. You know that name, many of you, one of the greatest preachers of our time. Uh, tells of a time in his autobiography during the early years of his preaching ministry when he was doing a crusade in a small town in South Carolina. And he needed to mail a letter. So he walked through the streets and he found a young boy and asked him where he could get to the post office. And after the boy had given him directions, Billy said, well, well, well a little boy, if you come to the Baptist church tonight, I'll tell you how to get to heaven. And as only a kid could respond, the boy said, No thanks, Mr. Graham. You don't even know how to get to the post office. How do I trust that you're going to get me to heaven? <laughs> Look, you may not know a lot of things in this life. You may not know anything more than your family business. But when you're with Christ, the way is clear. The way is clear. Was your family not what it should have been? Maybe you're from the opposite side. Was your family not what it should have been? You didn't come from a pedigree of a family. You just came from a family of craziness 
then friends, Christ is still central in all those things. It took James a while to figure that out, but that's what it was. But if you did grow up with a family that was hardworking, Christian mother, father, family, be thankful for that. And if you didn't, be thankful for that too, because that family needs Jesus just the same. So that was the zeal he got from his pedigree. I am Zebedee's son. I am Salome's son. But now I want you to see, secondly, the zeal from his prominence. The zeal from his prominence. You see there that it lists him as saying that he was James, the son of Zebedee, and so also John, the brother, to whom he gave the name Angerus, that is, the son of uh, Thunder. So not only does he come from a very pedigree family, but he comes from a family of prominence. He was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, to use another phrase. But he's second, James is, in the list closest to the Lord. Remember we said this a couple times. The list, Peter, all the way down to Judas, is listed how close they were to Jesus. Not necessarily in importance, although we see that to some degree with the leaders, but most importantly, how close they were to Jesus. Peter being first, James being second. All four lists, though, about the apostles always begin with Peter, James, John, and that really quiet dude named Andrew. So what I'd like to do, and and we're going to turn a lot here, but I want you to go through at least four passages that speak about these four guys, because they're going to show the prominence of James. So hold your spot there in Mark 3, but go over to chapter 5 and verse 37. Chapter 5 and verse 37. I want you to see James, John, Peter, and Andrew as they come together. James 5, 37. And it says, And Jesus allowed no one to follow him except, and here they are, Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And Jesus, here in this section, he's about to go into the back room and raise someone from the dead. Guys, does God still raise people from the dead today? The answer is yes. Spiritually, most of all, every now and then by grace, perhaps physically. But Jesus is about to go, and he leaves the other nine out of it. He says, I want James, John, and Peter, get over here. It's like a football coach when someone's losing, and they call you up and say, get in there and score some points. But they come together, and in Mark 5, 43, after this little girl uh, is raised from the dead, it says, and Jesus charged them, who's them? Specifically, the three apostles, Peter, James, John, to not know or share this with anyone and he told them to give her something to eat james was privileged guys james was very very privileged he was seeing some of the biggest ministry of jesus right in front of his eyes all right go i told you we're going to go fast go to mark chapter 9 and verse 2 mark chapter 9 and verse 2 and i want you to see this as well the second picture of prominence you see in james's life it says and he allowed no one, that's Jesus, and he allowed no one to follow him except who? Peter and James and John, the brother of James. What is he doing here? He is doing what we know now as the, uh, the, the transfiguration. This is where Jesus shows forth his glory in a way that no one could have ever have thought. He was showing them something that was to come. He was showing them, Peter, James, and John, exactly who he was in a mighty, mighty way. It is one of those things that if you saw something like this, you have to be fully persuaded that Jesus is who he said he is. Again, James has 
privilege and prominence. All right, we're going to skip to another one. Go to Mark chapter 13 and verse 1. We're skipping almost four chapters every time. Mark chapter 13 and verse 1. I want to show you another spot where James has prominence. Mark chapter 13 and verse 1. And this is getting close to the end. And it says, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what a wonderful stones and wonderful buildings these are. And Jesus said to them, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be one left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the temple mount, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when they are accomplished? Again, we don't have time to unpack that. But Jesus is telling these four privately, this major group of leaders, James being one of them, that he is in control. That whatever is coming ahead of him, no matter his background, no matter what privilege he thinks he has in prominence, that you don't need to fear James, you need to simply move forward in your ministry. That's what he's telling him. Notice that it says in your Bible, I don't know what your Bible has here, but at the end of verse 3 it says the word privately. Privately. This was not open to interpretation. This was Jesus pulling them aside and sharing with them exactly what it was. One last spot, and we'll apply this point before moving on. Mark chapter 14 and verse 33. Mark 14, 33. James had prominence. He had privilege. And can't you think for a moment, he probably thought it's because my daddy's got a rich old business. Oh, by golly. Don't you just hate when Hollywood stars get in trouble and they seem to get a slap on the wrist for doing something that if you did that, you'd be thrown in jail and they toss out the key? Do you know what I'm saying? James, probably being zealous and prideful as he was, had a thought that, man, Jesus must want some of that family business too. He really, really likes me. He's brought me along all through this time. But then the reality sets in. Mark chapter 14 and verse 33. And they, actually back to verse 32, this is at the end when Jesus is praying before his arrest, and they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Jesus says, sit here while I pray. And he took with him who? Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly troubled. And Jesus said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, watch, even unto death, remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he prayed, and if you skip down... Uh, to verse 37, and he came to them and found them what? They were asleep. He told the others to sit and pray. Something big is about to happen because they would be in place of leadership. He's been grooming them, Jesus has, and he took them to see the agony of his suffering and feel with him something of the cross and the death that he was to die. But they fell asleep. They're real people just like you and me, aren't they? Uh, I, I don't think anyone would not be honest in here if you've ever fallen asleep, well-intended as it was, as you've prayed, you've read your Bible, you've listened to Darren's sermons, you know, all those great things. Whatever it is, it happens. What does this teach us? It reminds us, and Amy will put this up on the screen, that no believer is too weak to be used by God, mightily by God, except those who are too dependent upon their own strength. James would see the glory, the power of Christ, the sovereignty and the agony of Christ undergoing the depth of his soul. 
And it suggests that if we are going to be used by God, we must draw very near to the Lord Jesus Christ. We must be like James and witness his power, his glory, his sovereignty, and his agony to be greatly used by him. But James thought, he's learning. God has already saved him, but my daddy's got it good. I'm I'm in the special inner circle with this guy named Jesus, and he's going to radically shape. I'm going to be part of this great power shift in Israel. But he missed it for the trees, didn't he? Reminds me of a story about a passenger in a taxi who leaned over to ask a driver a question as they were driving in the taxi, and he gently tapped him on the shoulder to get his attention. And the driver screamed, and he lost control, nearly hit a bus, drove up, and almost went through a a, a business, a large plate window. But for a few moments, as they were just in shock, they were silent. And then shaking his head, the driver said, are you okay? He said, I'm so sorry, but you scared the daylights out of me. And the badly shaken passenger apologized and said, I didn't realize that a mere tap on the shoulder would startle you so much. He said, but the driver said, no, 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 no. I'm the one who's sorry. It's entirely my fault because today's my first day driving a cab. You see, the last 25 years, I've driven a hearse every day. And it was what it was. We're watching a lot of old unsolved mysteries at our house on Amazon, and some of those will make you do that too. Friends, this is what James was experiencing. He had been going through life with a silver spoon in his mouth. He'd been going through life with privilege and prominence and pedigree, all these things. But now the wheels were starting to come off. Why? Because God was going to do a great move in his life. The zeal that he had, the passion that he had, he thought he got had this under control. He could probably package it in nine steps, put it on an infomercial late at night, and make millions of dollars and go live a happy life, even despite Daddy Zebedee's money. But God wasn't finished with him yet. In fact, he was headed to something else. But distance from our Savior can't be used. The Lord allows all of his disciples to have a closeness to him, not based on anything other than faith alone in Jesus Christ. Friend, you can never bring anything to the table that will save you other than faith in Jesus Christ. You can be the most prominent person in your business, in your neighborhood, in Kansas City, in the world, that will never buy you any part of what Jesus came to do. It is completely free to you. Completely free. So let's see finally what he became. What he became. James had a zeal for his family pedigree. He had a zeal for his prominence. He was in that inner circle, oh, look at me. But now he has a zeal from his passion. A zeal from his passion. Look at verse 17. If you go back to Mark 3, verse 17. I am not going to try and pronounce to you. I always mess it up. You can listen to it on a better said uh, online. But Mark 3, 17. He is called a son of thunder. You ever have nicknames for your kids? Have you ever wanted to name a son of thunder? You ever think about that? Why did Jesus choose this name? I mean, Mark is the only one to record this verse in a non-Jewish audience in Aramaic. This son of thunder literally means to be a ball of fire for God. Maybe you have a kid like that. He spoke with thunder, James did. He 
preached with thunder, he lived with thunder, and the only other disciple, if you go back to verse 16, that we know of that had a name change uh, was Simon, who, to whom he gave the name Peter, who became the rock. And you will find, and he will be a firm one to draw strength, Peter was. And it meant something to go from Simon to Peter. But son of thunder is like a nickname. Every time when Jesus called him, he'd do that. Hey, son of thunder, come here. You know, sounds like a Marvel comic, doesn't it? A reminder to James that the work of grace would look differently in his life. It reminded him that James' passionate nature was not a bad thing. He was a fiery disciple like thunder. He was a man of zeal. And like Jesus in John 2.17, Jesus was a man of zeal. He was ignited by the grace of God, the truth of God. And what a great virtue that is. Lukewarmness is a sin. To be eh with Jesus, to be blah with Jesus is no worse a sin you could say than for someone to just flat out say, I want nothing to do with Jesus. You must have a zeal for Jesus Christ. Not a zeal for Tower View Baptist Church, might I add. And there's nothing wrong with having a zeal for Tower View Baptist. Not a zeal to be the best father you can be, and that's a great thing. Not a zeal to be the best or whatever it is you want to be to God's glory, however far that may take you. Those are good things, but primarily, foundationally, a zeal for Jesus. If you're going to bore people, you might bore them with Shakespeare or something like that with respect. And I love the old classics, but don't bore them with Jesus Christ. You ever heard someone say that before? I tried Jesus out once and it just didn't work for me. The virtue of following Christ is you are enthusiastic. Amy's going to put this up on the screen. But when you are rooted and grounded in God, you will have an excitement for your soul for God. And I'm speaking to a predominantly Southern Baptist church. You know, we're not holy rollers, whatever that means, right? We're, we're, we're pretty tight. You know, we, we start clapping. Everyone starts looking like, well, we can't clap. You know, we get, come on, guys. We're Baptists. You know how this goes. But God wants us hot or he wants us cold. In Revelation, it says he spews us from his mouth, and that's speaking to a church specifically. Let's be contextual. But he, don't be a, like the temperature in your faith of those around you. Be distinctive. Be on fire for Jesus Christ. Be on fire. Luke 9, 51 says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. Jer Jerusalem. You know, zeal always needs to be tempered, but with grace and love. It's like when you meet a newly saved Christian. that They want to reach the world for Jesus. There is nowhere they can go. There's no one they can't talk to. And they want to win the whole world. And it can be overwhelming at times. Like, dude, take a chill pill. Jesus is in control. But we got to reach him for Jesus. Yes, take a chill pill. This is what happened with James. He met Jesus. And that fiery passion he had just grew and grew and grew and grew to the point that he had to have the growing pains, to have his zeal, his boldness, be tempered with love. Many of you have had that happen in your lives. You've been so passionate about something, someone had to come along and say, hey, whether you be passionate or not, but can you take it down a notch? Pastor, are you saying that we should take it down a notch for Jesus? No, that's not at all what we're saying. Take it up a notch. But make sure when you take it up a notch that you do so with grace with love, with humility. It's not you and your own thing, but it is exactly how God wants it. 
You see in Luke 9.51, I won't have you turn there, to get from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south, you had to pass straightway through Samaria. The Jews didn't like the Samarians more than Chiefs like Raiders fans, or KU likes MU or fill in the blank. They were a mixed race, the Samaritans were, and they worshipped and mingled with the ungodly Assyrians many years ago. They came up with their own worship practices and all these things. And I want you to hear what happened in Luke 9, 52 through 56. Just listen to this. And Jesus sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people didn't receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when the disciples James and John saw what the Samaritans did, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned to him and rebuked him, and they went on to another village. Did you hear what happened? James and John were upset because they offended Jesus, or or they thought, and they had a heart attack. They said, this can't be right. What do you mean? You rejected the Lord Jesus Christ? When James and John saw this, they outright took that as an offense. They wanted fireballs to come down from heaven and take them out. I know you felt that way about people before, but do you see what Jesus said? He turned and what? Rebuked them. They were very missions-minded, mind you. They were very missions-minded to the fact that if you don't repent and turn, you're going to turn or burn. That's pretty much what it was. It was kind of the old... uh, uh, well, it was, it was it, some bad parts of church history. They said, we're going to have a church cookout, Samaritans, and guess what? You're on the menu. And, but Jesus rebuked them. Friends, they had a zeal. They had a great zeal. But I would rather tone down someone with a passion and zeal than raise someone who's been sitting in church for 50, 60, even five days from the dead. In their new faith, their zeal had outrun their love for others. You've known people like this. Maybe you've been part of this. Their conviction had overtaken their compassion. This would take time in their lives because they needed to surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ and his spirit. Paul told Timothy to, re- to preach the word, 2 Timothy 3.16, reprove, rebuke, in season and out of season, verse four, chapter verse 4, 2 of 2 Timothy but James had a zeal, but it, it was like a, it's like giving a child a loaded weapon and saying, go have fun. They can hurt people. Can you relate to this? Is this speaking to anyone here today? Maybe you don't have zeal where you get out in front of people and you're so all the time. But part of the maturing process that God has for you, Christian, is that he would hold a strong conviction in one hand and on the other to not allow you to yield to anything but love, grace, and humility. Some truths should ignite our soul so much that we wrestle with and understand, but do we not have the same degree of patience for others? So many in this room have been blessed with such knowledge of the Word of God that when we get around people who have lesser knowledge, quite frankly, we think, well, you don't know what I know. If you had only known this... Friends, the greatest doctrines of Scripture should ignite a fire under your bottom that sets you on fire for Jesus Christ, but you should have such a love about them that no matter what comes your way, you are patient with all those around you. It's good for us to look at James. He was fiery. He was passionate. We need more thunder in our pulpits and less blah, to be quite frank. We need more thunder from the... I'm not a Bible beater, but I'll, you know, we need more thunder from our pulpits. We do. 
not seven ways to make your financial checkbook balance out or six ways that you can fix your relationship. Look, you go to Jesus for that and he'll fix your relationship. He tells you how to do that. But we need a thunder that's under the control of God, under the control of God. Friends, there is always a price to pay for being a Christian. For some of us, that means that we have to dial it down a notch, not in passion, but in how we view that passion. I can, I've told you before, some of the greatest years of, uh, in, of early ministry for us was 10, 15 years ago in Westport when we were doing evangelism. And just, the, you know, Aaron I, I, Aaron, I see you back there, brother. You remember these days? We, we would take routinely 25 college students on a Friday night down the bar section of town. What, that doesn't get you fired up for Jesus, just on a superficial level. I don't know what does. But that passion... Sometimes when a homeless person would come up and say, do you have any money? And I had money. Would you give the money to them? No, I'm just share the gospel, share the gospel, share the gospel. When they were truly hungry, God taught a lot of lessons with a lot of zeal that was directed towards him. But like James, had to be brought with compassion, love, and mercy. If you're looking for an easy ministry, Christian, then it will be something that won't accomplish anything. The truth and the cross is a price to pay in the sin-filled world. But do you have the love that undergirds all that? Is it that? If you turn to 1 Corinthians 13 with me, and I, I, we'll, we'll get ready to close with one more slide, but if you go to 1 Corinthians 13, I just put a note with this. Many of you are familiar with this passage. It's so true. 1 Corinthians 13, chapter, uh, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I have delivered up my body to be burned but I have not love, I gain nada, nothing, zilch, zero. Love is patient and kind. Love is, does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, verse 6, but it rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Darren, are you saying that, that, that Christianity should be a spineless, jellyfish Christianity that is a doormat for anyone who comes our way? It's not what we're saying. Men and women of God, we should have firm backbones for Jesus Christ so much that we are willing to die for him if that is necessary. But as we do that, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Is that you this morning? James must have been tempered. He had to have been tempered. He was deepened. And that requires time, trial, and truth as we looked at. And over time, 14 years later, you know what happened to James? Go to Acts chapter 12. This, I didn't want you to go there, but go to Acts chapter 12, will you? I want you to see this. I know you're flipping a lot today, and that's not usual even for me. But Acts chapter 12, I want you to see what happened to James 14 years later. And I'll give you one more slide. Amy, if you want to put that last one up, that's great. Thank you. This is what happened to James. The man who was so fiery, the man who was so passionate for God. Acts chapter 12 and verse 1 says... About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Let me just stop there. Herod had been demoted to go to one of the worst regions. That was Israel on the Middle East, the Mediterranean Sea. 
and to please his superiors in Rome, he was willing to do whatever it took to be in power. So he got in a strange bedfellow relationship with the Jewish people. They both hated Christians, and so it was a good thing. And it says, Herod killed who? Acts chapter 12, verse 2. Who did he kill? James, the brother of John. There's the designation again, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So James, 14 years on, was like, this is what an oak tree looks like. You know, in our neighborhood, it's a newer neighborhood, we have all those little trees that are great. They look nice, but are you going to be in the house long enough to pay off your mortgage and see them be oak trees? I don't know, but he had rough edges that needed to be knocked off. And Jews were hated Christianity, but he killed the brother of James. Sometimes the oddest political foes end up in the same bed to stand against another foe. But who was the one who died? Who was the one who had the strongest voice in the early church, the deepest conviction? Who was the one who had thunder in his soul? Was it Peter? No. Look at verse 3. And it pleased them that he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Peter was in jail. The one they went after was the biggest threat that made the biggest statement to the unbelieving world, and that was the loudest voice, James. Off with his head, most likely, because of his passion, now tempered with grace, to Jesus Christ. What a change. How can you have this thunder in your life? Let me give you three or four quick things. This is it. Friends, you must have conviction in your soul. For James to die the death he did, you must have conviction. You must have sound doctrine. You must know why you believe what you believe. If you would stand for anything, then you will fall for anything. If you won't stand for anything, you'll fall for anything. You must have biblical conviction. You must be a person who has a deeper understanding of the word of God, no matter what's around you, who's around you, but you also must have the greatest fire around God. Don't let anyone talk you out of your conviction to scripture. We will never sacrifice that Jesus is the only way to heaven. We will never sacrifice that the Bible is the only true authoritative word of God. And you can walk through scenes like those in Mark where they saw these four realities that we looked at a minute ago and that put thunder in their souls because of their deep conviction upon absolute truth. The second thing you need to have thunder in your life is to have a connection. A connection. First, of course, through Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian here today, you can have a lot of thunder, whatever that is. You can have the Oklahoma City thunder for all that matters, but if you don't have thunder connected to the one true vine, Jesus Christ, by believing that he died for you, that he rose again, that he is the only Savior, then nothing I'm saying here will make any sense. You must repent and believe. But if you hang out with lukewarm Christians, guess what you're going to be? Be a lukewarm Christian. If you hang out with thunder-filled but tempered with grace Christians, you're going to find them, and they're going to challenge you. We are not here on Sunday. When you're not, and I mean this because we're going to be gone next week. I, please understand what I'm saying here. But when you are not here on a Sunday, you are missing thunder in your life. We understand things come up and travel and all those things. How many times do you go to church, Pastor? How much thunder do you want in your life would be my question. You have to make that choice. The connection you have with Christ and other believers of like passion inform the thunder, so to speak, by, spirit, by the Spirit in your life. Separation. You must be separated. To be worldly-minded and caught up in the things of this world and infatuated with things of this world will steal the thunder out of you. Look, you can pray for five hours on your knees about all sorts of things and go and look at images on the Internet, and everything you just did went down the drain, down to the Missouri River. 
We are in the world, but we're not of the world. We're a boat in the water, but there should be no water in the boat, if you want to put it in that way. And finally, you want to thunder in your life? Share the gospel. Share the gospel. This is not the pastor's job. It's not the Sunday school director's job. It's not the chairman of the deacon's job, although that's sure that's part of it. You want a passion in your life? Go share about the passion you have. Jesus is your life. Go share about him. Go tell about him. Write about him on Facebook. You know, private message him. You know, back in the day when we, 1997, 98, we were in chat rooms, IRC chat rooms, just clicking on people's names saying, do you know Jesus? That's all I knew how to share the gospel. Do you know Jesus? And every now and then people said, no, I don't. Tell me about him. Gilbert and I were talking about this on Thursday. Look, if you get rejected for Jesus Christ, praise the Lord. If someone says, tell me more later, praise the Lord. If they come to Christ, praise the Lord. Do you know why? Because God uses all that for his glory. But you have to be willing. You have to be willing. Say, Darren, I'm scared. I'm scared every Tuesday we go out as God leads to share the gospel. Knock on a door, you never know what's going to be around that door. We're off topping in 48th. If you want to know where we're at, you can come join us on Tuesday. Be happy to have you, 9 o'clock. Say, Darren, door knocking is not my thing. That's fine, but have you used the avenues God's given you? Some of you are very quiet, introverted people. That's okay. But are you letting that be an excuse, a fear, to share the greatest love that you have, Jesus Christ? Friend, do you want thunder in your life? It starts with knowing Christ in this way. Let's pray today as we close. Father, as we come before you today, we are reminded that you are God and we are not. Father, we don't desire, as some do, to worship dead saints. That's not why we're here with respect to those who do. We are here to worship you, the one who was dead and rose again. The same Lord that James and Peter, we've studied, lived to and died to and gave their lives for. Father, we may never be asked to give our lives physically, but Father, there's, there's reputation, there's sacrifice, there's uh, promotion opportunities, there's things that as we truly seek to be living for you, ambassadors for you, that it may cost us within our families, within our jobs, within our communities, within our ranks, whatever it is. Father, help us not to trust in pedigree, help us not to trust in prominence, help us not to just trust our passion, which that feeds off other people, but let everything we do be from the source that you died for us and you loved us and you gave your life for us. It took James a while to get there, Lord, as, as you're still working on us here as we speak. But Father, thank you that your grace, it says in Philippians, that he who began a good work in us will, will not finish, or will finish it rather, at the day of redemption. You don't just leave us hanging, Lord. Thank you for that. But Father, it's not just about us. It's about this local body. So, Father, as we come together to glorify and honor you, may you truly be lifted high. Lord, you are good. You are mighty. You are holy. We thank you. Do what you will with this information today by grace. In Jesus' name.